Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation, and I am delighted to be here today with three extraordinary colleagues, Natasha Roth-Roland, Orly Noy, and Peter Beinart, to discuss the concept of Jewish supremacy. Thank you for joining us. Today is October 20th, 2022. Before we dive in, a few words on why we're having this discussion now. For the last few years, I've observed that people with Zionist backgrounds and affinity with Israel, some of the people I'm in conversation with, have seemed more open to listening and engaging in conversation around the ways in which Israel is a Jewish supremacist state, more open talking about Jewish supremacy than talking about apartheid. I think that somehow the concept of Jewish supremacy perhaps either resonates or makes them curious. And I've been curious about this difference, about what Jewish supremacy, the concept, might be capturing and communicating in ways that particular audiences may be able to engage. So I wanted to dig into what critics of Israel and supporters of Palestinian liberation mean when they use the term Jewish supremacy to describe the political and social structures between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. To be clear, Palestinians have long described the regime of oppression and dispossession under which they live as supremacist and also as settler colonialist and also as apartheid. In recent years, Palestinians have talked about Jewish supremacy in Israel-Palestine with particular emphasis on the ways that the nation state law made Jewish supremacy explicit and cemented it inside of 1948 Israel in particular. The nation state law, which was passed by the Israeli Knesset in 2018, says that the state of Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and that the right to self-determination there is exclusive to, Jewish to the Jewish people alone. The Palestinian human rights organization, Adela, says that the nation state law, and I'm quoting, quote, enshrines Jewish supremacy over Palestinian citizens and guarantees the ethnic religious character of Israel as exclusively Jewish and entrenches the privileges enjoyed by Jewish citizens. Today's conversation is one of many that FMEP has hosted and will continue to host on the structure and nature of the Israeli regime. FMEP is not a Jewish or a Palestinian organization. We try to specifically platform Palestinian voices in our programs because it is so important and so endlessly valuable to listen to and engage with Palestinians on the issues we cover, and because Palestinians are usually excluded and marginalized in public discourse. But today we are turning specifically to Jewish thinkers to think about, to talk about how and why using the concept of Jewish supremacy is valuable. I'm not asking today's guests to speak for Palestinians. I'm asking them to speak from their expertise and their experience and to speak about the audiences with which they interact. Having this conversation today with Jewish guests and a Jewish host is a way of using Jewish privilege to have a conversation that were the guests and the host not Jewish would otherwise likely be cast and dismissed as anti-Semitic. As listeners to the Occupied Thoughts podcast know well, people in the Israel right or wrong crowd use accusations of anti-Semitism to undermine, marginalize, and silence critique of Israel. Today, we're trying to hold and open more space for conversation. And I am so grateful to be joined 
by three brilliant thinkers and writers. So I'll introduce you to them. Natasha Roth Rowland is an editor and writer at 972 Magazine and a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Virginia. Her research and writing focus on the Jewish far right in Israel-Palestine and the United States. Orly Noy is an editor at Local Call, the Hebrew sister site to 972 Magazine. She's a political activist, chair of the board of B'Tselem and active with the Balad political party. And Peter Beinart is non-resident fellow at FMEP. He's also a professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York, editor at large at Jewish Currents and an MSNBC political commentator. Hello to you all. Thank you so much for being here today. So Orly, I wanna start with you. You have been using the term Jewish supremacy to describe Israel for several years. Can you tell us what you mean by it? And when, when did you start to describe Israel as a Jewish supremacist regime? Um, hi, uh, thank you, Sarah Ann, and thank you so much for having me um, on this show. Um, I think that the using of this term, Jewish supremacy, began um, or, or, or started with a feeling that the often uh, used uh, terms to, to describe uh, the Israeli-Palestinian reality uh, focused mainly on the formalistic side of that reality, but somehow missed its essence. Um, you know, there is a, an entire vocabulary that we've been using along the years uh, to describe that reality. Words such as occupation, discrimination, damaged democracy, and lately, as you mentioned, also apartheid join, joined um, that terminology. And of course, they are all valid, but I think that they are lacking in two sense, senses. Um, the first sense is, uh, as I said, they are reflecting mainly the formalistic aspects of the Israeli uh, control over the Palestinians, mainly through legislation. And I think it's um, no accident that in your introduction, you mentioned uh, the nation state law. Or they are uh, descriptive of the different uh, practices and implementations of those laws on the ground. Um, occupation is a legal term. Apartheid is a legal term. Even discrimination is a legal term. And I think that legal terms very often conceal the essence that is behind them. And I think that this essence is very accurately uh, Jewish supremacy. Um, the other sense in which I think that the commonly used uh, 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 words uh, are lacking is that those uh, legal descriptive terms allow Israel to uh, excuse its way out uh, way too easily. I mean, you know, Israelis would say, yes, there is occupation, but it's a temporary situation because of security needs. And uh, uh, the fact is that we have not uh, annexed uh, 
the occupied territories in the West Bank, except for East Jerusalem. Yes, there is discrimination against Palestinian citizens, but it, this is only because they don't fulfill their part in the political sphere. And uh, if they uh, only sit, agree to sit in the government and by that, uh, legitimizing every massacre in Gaza, every ethnic cleansing in the West Bank, and even legitimizing their or their own inferior uh, position as second-class citizens in their own country, we can deal with uh, the question of discrimination by enlarging their uh, budgets. But the truth is that occupation is not a temporary situation, and the uh, discrimination against Palestinian citizens is an integral part of the Israeli regime. And the even more bitter truth is that in their core, there is an entire additional layer that is not directly connected to the formalistics, but to the mindset, to the collective ethos, to the self to the deepest self-conceptions that allow that reality to continue and to uh, truly understand that reality, it needs that layer needs to be named correctly. Um, we should honestly admit the fact that in Israel, throughout the years, um, developed an unspoken race theory according to which Jews, only because of being Jews, deserve more. Now, you can find its more vulgar uh, appearances in um, uh, the teachings of uh, Mayor Kahana and of his uh, pupils who might very well, very soon become uh, the, uh, one of the most powerful uh, players in the next Israeli government. But the essence, its essence, uh, uh, is dictating the formal, official Israeli uh, policies vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians throughout the entire uh, uh, land between the river and the sea. And this is uh, a combination of, let's say, more popular racism of the more familiar uh, kind with an institutionalized racism uh, that, that understands uh, Jewish privileges as a moral value. That thing, that, that uh, point, uh, a term such as occupation, discrimination, and even apartheid sort of miss, and this is, uh, 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 at least for me, the added value uh of the concept of jewish supremacy thank you so much thanks for starting us off um so thoroughly and richly so peter i i want to ask you a, a similar question you recently used the term jewish supremacy in in a column you published in the new york times and you referenced b'tselem the israeli organization that orly chairs and their 2021 publication uh which was entitled a regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid. So that was your that was your reference. What's your intention in using the term Jewish supremacy? 
I think that Jewish supremacy is valuable because it connects what's happening in Israel-Palestine to a global struggle that um, people in the United States and other places can recognize, which is between notions of citizenship that aspire towards the idea of equality uh, under the law and a kind of civic notion of citizenship in which you aspire towards the idea that everyone is treated equal regardless of their race, religion, uh, ethnicity, gender, um, and notions that have been rising in many different countries that essentially um, uh, a nation has a kind of ethno, ethnic, religious, racial core, um, and that core deserves to be supreme. Um, and, and should be treated as superior. And anyone else who happens to be in the country are essentially um, sec at, at best second-class citizens, at, at worst not citizens at all, and, um, um, and uh, are not true members of the nation. Um, I think that it's there, are, while I think that the use, of the, the use of the term apartheid has been important um, in the sense that it has emphasized the importance of recognizing that the that, that 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 there is one regime between the river and the sea and that that the distinction that have been so dominant you know in uh in american discourse for a long time about kind of the occupation whether that was ever right is certainly kind of been superseded by events but i also think that apartheid because the term itself is an afrikaans term um, and comes out of South Africa, even though there is a broader international legal definition, does tend to focus people on, uh, on the question of the similarities and differences between Israel and South Africa. And, and I think in some ways that has also been a little bit of a cul-de-sac that people have been brought into. Um, and, and so I think that in some way, and also it's in some ways it's less relevant because apartheid South Africa no longer exists, right? Whereas I think the more, in some ways, the more interesting and relevant conversations today are about what's happening in India um, with a kind of Hindu supremacism, or in or in Poland and Hungary with a kind of a, a, a white Christian supremacism, or in the United States uh, with a with a white Judeo Christian uh, supremacism, right? Or even in Iran, right, with a, a kind of a you know with with a, with an Islamic um, Persian you know, um, uh, uh, you know, misogynistic supremacy, whatever, how one thinks about this. And I think that part of the, ch the reason I think I find it appealing is that um, it, 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 it allows us to focus on those people who, who are sympathetic to those struggles against supremacy in other places and ask them to see this as part of that global struggle. And it also allows us to say, that what happens in Israel-Palestine matters beyond Israel-Palestine. That it's not only that this is crucial because Palestinians deserve equality and freedom, but that the Israel-Palestine exception also is makes it critically makes it much more difficult for us to engage in this struggle against other places, against supremacy in other places. If you look at the way that Modi's government in India models itself on what's happening in Israel-Palestine, or if you look at the way that the attacks on human rights organizations that are led by Israelis and, and defenders, then kneecap them and make it harder for them to, to hold other countries account, whether it's in China, where there's a kind of Han Chinese supremacy. So these are, this is the reason that I find this a kind of fertile language. Great, thank you so much. Um, both of you, both Orly and Peter, you've, you've talked explicitly about how the term is inviting the imagination of your listener. To, you're inviting the listener into this conversation in specific ways that are um, calling upon their ability to, to really imagine and understand 
the emotional side of politics, whether whether this is about the 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 um, the moral place and the essence of a kind of racism, or about who you imagine yourself to be, Peter, as you just described, as someone who opposes supremacy in other parts of the world, and how do you see Israel Palestine? Um, so this is so interesting thinking about Jewish supremacy in the term as an invitation to your listeners into a particular worldview and, and, and understanding. And Natasha, I want to ask you how you understand the term Jewish supremacy. Um, and and if you'll comment on what Peter and Orly said, but also specifically to help us understand how you differentiate or, or don't between supremacy and nationalism. Thanks, Sarah, and um, it's great to be here with all of you. I I don't have too much to add, actually, to Oli and Peter's very astute insights on how they conceptualize um, Jewish supremacism and its applications, and um, you know what they're trying to communicate to their readers and, and listeners and the people they engage with by using the term. I do think that it's really important to just reiterate this point Orly made about um, how it captures something that I think a lot of the other words that we use to describe and label Israeli repression of Palestinians kind of miss in a way. Um, and I think that actually brings us back to this fascinating point you made in your introduction, Sarah Ann, about how people seem more open to the terminology around Jewish supremacism than around apartheid. And, you know, I'll admit I was a little bit taken aback when you first said that, because to me, the, you know, the concept of supremacism, I think, animates people a lot more, it agitates people a lot more. I think as we've seen in some of the blowback to usage of the term, whether that is in good faith or bad faith, you know, it, it really is discomforting for people because it reminds them of, of something that they don't want to be reminded of in connection to the behavior of the Jewish state. Um, but reflecting on it while Orly and, and Peter were talking, I think it, it it kind of makes sense because, Peter, you were gesturing at this a little bit, with, but with apartheid, there's something clear-eyed and, and intentional about it that I think with supremacism, it's easier, you know, even if you think of the state as acting in a supremacist way, it's easier to think of it as some kind of aberration or something that spiraled out of control that was never intended to be that way. Whereas when you're talking about the legal architecture of apartheid, it's much, much harder to make that argument. So I kind of understand why that might sit, you know, the idea of Jewish supremacism might sit a little more comfortably with some people than with others. Um, and the last thing I want to say on that point is that the other utility of thinking about supremacism is that it does cover a broad range of behaviors by a broad range of actors. You mentioned the nation, Jewish nation state law that was passed, I think, four years ago. That's an example of supremacist policymaking, supremacist lawmaking by a state. And then you have the kind of other side of it, which is the grassroots side, which I think people are more willing to, to name, which is, you know, violent racist mobs attacking Palestinians in the street, chanting death to Arabs and so on. And I think it's very easy to exceptionalize the idea of supremacism and again, tie it back into that idea of aberration by pointing to those kind of grassroots behaviors and saying, okay, but this is, you know, a specific subset of people and they don't represent the majority and they certainly don't represent the state. And actually supremacism is much more all-encompassing than that. And the way I understand it, 
certainly in this context, is that what you see in the street is an outgrowth of what happens in the Knesset and surrounding it. The street level activity does not drive the policymaking. It's the policymaking that creates a fertile atmosphere and a level of permissiveness for that behavior to take place, usually with minimal consequences for the perpetrators. As for distinguishing between nationalism and supremacism and whether they overlap and how much, I mean, you could do an entire podcast just on that. Uh, There are so many different definitions of nationalism. But just in brief, for me, nationalism, not all nationalisms are supremacist from the beginning. I think that's really important to point out. On the flip side, I think supremacism pretty much always contains a kernel of nationalism. And I would also say that the potential to deteriorate into supremacism inheres in many, many forms of nationalism. I think it's there's there's very often the the raw material there and and whether or not it develops in that direction just depends on the social political environment. Great. Thank you for that. Thank you for all of that. Um, and we're we'll come back a little bit to conversations around supremacy and nationalism. We're gonna have a little bit of a conversation around um around Zionism. But before we get there, you talked about the Knesset um and and the, this relationship between the grassroots and, and policymakers, and and I think that we um, we actually need to talk a little bit about uh, about what's happening right now on, with the the Jewish supremacist political agenda and specific politicians and and political parties. Um, Orly, I want to ask you if you'll please talk to us about about what is the the Jewish supremacist political agenda and who is representing and and promoting it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think that, um, it's a tricky shift, you know, to moving from, uh, speaking about, uh, uh, Israel as a Jewish supremacist regime to specific uh, supremacist political agendas or political actors. Um, it, it, it's tricky because if you uh, accept the definition of Israel as an apartheid state, which I uh, do, uh, apartheid is a regime of supremacy. So, um, you know, you can obviously talk about Israel in its entirety as uh, a supremacist uh, regime. On the other hand, I think that it's... Um, very important uh, not to oversimplify the Israeli political reality, because you really cannot put uh, merits in the same basket, political basket, with Itamar Ben-Gvir or Gatzalel uh, Smotrich, although they are all uh, on the Zionist uh, spectrum and, and therefore uh, uh, entail some of that uh, uh, supremacist essence. Um, I do not accept the claim uh, held by many in the non-Zionist left that uh, the differences between Meretz and Bengvir, for example, are merely cosmetic. I think that there is more to that. It's true that Meretz is uh, holding uh, uh, representatives in all of the Zionist uh, institutions that are executing the supremacist uh, uh, policies, such as the Jewish Agency, the Jewish National Fund, 
etc. But the uh, uh the the democratic concept as something positive something valuable something to be aspired is still at the core of the ideology ideology of the uh, uh zionist left uh, which is which cannot be said of course about the israeli rights uh, altogether and certainly not the kindest kind of uh israeli ultra right uh, where the supremacy itself is uh, uh, a value, a virtue. So I would uh, uh, define it in, in, in the following way. Both uh, the Israeli Zionist left and right are committed to the maintaining of uh, the absolute Jewish privileges in Israel. But while with the uh, Zionist left, the concept of democracy as a value dictates a political stand according to which uh, at least the individual rights of the Palestinian citizens should be expanded uh, to the level that, of course, they do not endanger uh, the Jewish privileges, collective privileges, the Kahanist right, and here we are talking about supremacy as a virtue, as a, a value, the Kahanist right is seeking the exact opposite, the uh, disqualifying uh, of or, or, or the, the taking down all the democratic existing barriers in order to reduce uh, the the space of Palestinian value uh, rights to the absolute minimum, both in inside Israel and uh, in the occupied territories. And those are not semantic differences, uh, um, if only because they uh, dictate counter politics vis-a-vis -vis those uh, stands. I think that the Kahanist right should be defeated, pure and simple. They, they, we, we should defeat them. It should be defeated. It's dangerous, violent uh, political growth uh, in the Israeli politics. But I think that with the Zionist left, we should have a serious and uh, very difficult conversation about the inherent contradiction between the the character of Israel as a Jewish state and its ability to be a democratic state. And I think that uh, this is um, a, um, a decision or uh, a, a conclusion that the Zionist left has been avoiding uh, for many decades now. That's, thank you so much, Orly. Thank you for giving us the big picture on the trickiness of this conversation overall, speaking about um, how supremacy works in politics and the, and the specificity of comparing the Zionist left and, and the Kahanists. Um, Natasha, will you talk to us more about the Kahanists, about who, who they are uh, and how they've been mainstreamed? Sure. Um... I'll start with a kind of positive history, just in case that's useful for listeners. I mean, I think America Hanna is, is a pretty familiar figure, but uh, just to recap, he was 
born in Brooklyn, 1930s, very active in right-wing Zionist youth groups um, while living in New York. Started the Jewish Defense League, uh, emigrated to Israel in the early 1970s, founded a political party called Kach with what I consider to be an explicitly fascist uh, manifesto. He was barred from, he, he was elected to the Knesset with one seat uh, in 1984. His party was barred from running in 1988, um, ostensibly because of its anti-democratic and racist platform, but it was very much driven uh, by members of other right-wing parties who feared Kach would eat away at their voter share uh, in the upcoming elections. And then Kahana was assassinated in 1990 in New York. His party, uh, Kach, and its sort of offshoot, Kahana Chai, which means Kahana lives, uh, were outlawed in Israel in 1994 um, after Baruch Goldstein mur uh, sorry, murdered 29 Palestinian worshippers um, in the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron. But a kind of relatively small official under the radar core of true believers um, persisted throughout the decades. There weren't really Kahanist representatives um, commonly in the Knesset. Uh, you had uh, um, Mikhail Benari ben was uh, elected in the 2010s, um, although the, the party was not explicitly a Kahanist party in the way that we now see Otzmeyodit, which means um, Jewish power. That party is very much identified with Kahanism. Its members are very much, you know, certainly its core membership, most of whom have uh, since been ruled out of running for the Knesset, just leaving Itamar Ben Gvir because of their previous records of racism. Are, they're very, very strongly identified with Kahana, with Kahanism. They consider themselves his disciples. Um, and we now see Itamar Ben Gvir, who's the head of Otsmi Yodit, um, depending on whether Netanyahu wins the election uh, in a couple of weeks' time, poised to take up a ministerial role, which would be a first. That was always Kahana's dream. Uh, and now it looks like there's a, there's a real chance that Ben Gvir could make it a possibility. Now, in terms of parliamentary numbers, um, up until now, a Kahanist party has only ever independently won one seat. Uh, Otsmeo Dietz was pretty much frozen out in the last few elections, but Netanyahu and other senior Likud figures made repeated overtures to Otsmeo Dietz and to Itamar Ben Gvir because they saw his party as crucial to helping another right-wing party, religious Zionism, cross the electoral threshold and therefore be able to form part of a potential coalition uh, with Likud. So while in 2019 you saw all sorts of condemnations uh, of, of this approach from, from Netanyahu, including from American Jewish groups, what happened in the interim is that uh, Ben Gvir made it into the opposition and sort of pretty much overnight became a media sensation um, in comparison to when Kahana got into the Knesset, when Israeli media outlets sort of had an unofficial uh, blackout, uh, initially, certainly at first, uh, Ben Gvir has just been repeatedly invited to talk to reporters of different mainstream news broadcasts sort of night after night, 
there was some statistic published earlier this year showing just how many minutes of airtime he'd been given by the Israeli press. Um, and contrary to the idea that sunlight is the best disinfectant, this has actually led to a huge surge in popularity for Ben Gvir. To the point that now he is running again in partnership with religious Zionism and polls are making it seem as if they will be the third biggest party uh, when all the votes are counted. The idea that Ben Gvir as a Khanist is somebody to be frozen out of the political discourse, that his party should be frozen out, has completely fallen by the wayside. He has been astute um, in sort of softening some of his stances. He he tends to speak more now in dog whistles than explicit calls for mass expulsion. Uh, he took the picture of Baruch Goldstein down from his living room wall. The picture of Kahana stays there, of course. Um, and the condemnations that we saw from American Jewish groups a few years ago have since evaporated. And I'll just finish that off by saying that you know, it's not just that Ben Gvir and Otmei Odit have moderated. Israeli society has moved toward them as well. Um, but there is, you know, if we're talking about Jewish supremacism, there has always been an extent to which Kahana and Kahanism appealed to that kernel, that nationalist, ethnic, religious, racial supremacist kernel that we've talked about. Um, and events over the last 30 years in Israel-Palestine have just served to drive people to embrace that more openly. And Ben Gvir is now absolutely part of the Israeli mainstream. Thank you for that, Natasha. Orly, would you comment on that? Uh, yes, absolutely. I just I, I, I actually wanted to comment on what uh, Natasha mentioned about the political shift that we've been seeing uh, that one of its manifestations is uh, the legitimization, uh, uh, not only the political, but uh, the, the public legitimizing of uh, uh, declared Kahanists, uh, such as uh, Itamar Benville. I think that it's uh, very um, it, it, interesting to, to, to look at what happened with Article 7a in the uh, uh, basic Knesset law. This article basically says that a party or a list, a political list, cannot run for the Knesset if they undermine or do not accept the definition of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. Now, initially, that article was uh, uh, put in the Israeli law to prevent uh, the Kahanists from uh, entering the Knesset because uh, they are defying the democratic uh, nature uh, of, of Israel. Today, the Kahanists, as Natasha said, are about to become um, uh, perhaps the third uh, strongest political power in the Israeli parliament, while the same article ever since has been using almost exclusively to disqualify Palestinian lists from running to the Knesset time and time again, because they are undermining the Jewish definition of the state of Israel. And I think that this is uh, very indicative, it's very telling about the political uh, uh, developments uh, that Israel went through in the past few decades. 
Great. Thank you, Orly. Um, that was really helpful. And that was helpful from, from both of you. Thank you for rooting us in this moment in, in Israeli politics and in the mainstreaming of, of, uh, of these ideas. Um, I want to take a step back for a moment into thinking about the, the big uh, framing and analytical tools that we can use to, to understand uh, Israel-Palestine overall. And we talk about apartheid and, and settler colonialism a lot, um, as, as we should. And I want to ask how the concept of Jewish supremacy relates to these concepts of, of, of apartheid and, and settler colonialism um, and how thinking about them together can help us to understand how power and oppression work between the river and the sea. And Peter, I want to ask you to, to first talk about that because you started when you started talking, uh, talking about how, how um, Jewish supremacy situates Israel-Palestine within this concept, concept of a global struggle and, and globally. And um, can you talk to us a little more? You, you spoke about apartheid, but specifically about thinking about how, how the settler colonialism, settler colonialist aspects of Israel-Palestine also relate globally or are, um, are particular to how you understand Israel-Palestine? Sure. So I think um, I, I think there's, to me, no question that Israel and 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 um, political Zionism certainly was had clear settler colonial attributes. Um, in this, this is a um, a movement to that that kind of aimed to dominate um, uh, the population that was there, and also had a kind of a a modernizing language that was very typical uh, and also gained, although it had a complicated, also had a, had re relied on, on metropolitan powers to, to do that, you know, through things like the Balfour Declaration. Um, uh, I also think, so you could see that as having similarities with Australia or New Zealand or, or the United States or, or, or Canada. I mean, I also think that there are other, or um, Algeria, um, there, I think actually there even, other examples that may not come to mind as much, for instance, if you think about the way the movement in the Soviet Union of large numbers of people into Central Asia, um, uh, I think also has set the colonial features. I, I also think, and this may be, uh, I, I also think that that the settler colonialism captures something, but also misses something about, or does not capture the, the way in which, if you only knew that Zionism was a settler colonial movement, you would not understand the centrality of the land of Israel in Jewish tradition and Jewish texts, and the, 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 the way in which Zionism is conceived by many, many, many Jews as a homecoming and also as an asylum. Um, and I think it's important for me to try to hold both of those things. I don't think these two things, I think these things can both have elements of truth in them. And I don't think it requires one, I don't think one has to reject one in order to accept the other. Um, and I, um, and I, and um, so in terms of, um, you know, part of though the challenge in terms of, I think the, so I think there is a role for talking about settler colonialism. And I think that one of the, the values of talking about settler colonialism is that it helps you reminds one that even in a situation um, in which there is legal equality, right? So indigenous people in Canada and the United States now have the right to vote, right? They are treated equally under the law. Black South Africans now not only have the right to vote, but actually control, largely control the government because of their numerical numbers. And yet a settler colonial framework helps us to understand the way in which 
the roots of settler colonialism mean that 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 even in South Africa, um, black South Africans in some ways quite disempowered, um, uh, let alone in a place like Australia or New Zealand or Canada, United States, where the indigenous population was largely destroyed. So, um, so it, it, it's, it makes us remember that just providing a quality of the law actually still leaves a lot on um, th th there's still a huge agenda beyond that if one wants to actually try to deal with historical justice and kind of more substantive equality. I think, though, that one of the if one is talking about the way the different terms can uh, be used to the, to mobilize different people, in some ways, part of the, the, the re I think, the, again, to go back to what I said before, I think that if you think of the United, the challenge of the United States today, right, many more people would resonate with the struggle against supremacy, white supremacy, Christian supremacy, than the struggle against settler colonialism. Not because we don't have a struggle against settler colonialism, but in so that, that struggle is almost buried in the United States, right? We don't even have a conversation in the United States about, for instance, Canada and Australia are a little further along in terms of historical justice for indigenous people, right? Um, those are very important conversations, but I think that given that, that so much of the global discourse is about the, the supremacy and the, the rise of um, uh, kind of bigoted and violent kind of ethno-nationalist racist movements. I think that there is a value in joining the conversation about Israel-Palestine to that conversation. I also think that's part of what makes it so jarring to people because there's so many people in the United States who feel horrified by the notion of white Christian supremacy in the United States and in, in Europe um, and yet feel and, and yet have a fairly unquestioned idea for the support of Israel as a Jewish state. And so to suggest that, the, that there, is, there may be links between these two things is actually really, really upsetting to a lot of people. But I also think that that's part of why there's a value in opening that conversation, because, um, first of all, it challenges the notion that because Jews have a particular history of oppression, therefore Jews and the Jew, a Jewish state should be an exception to these general rules that, that I think that liberal-minded people would support. And secondly, I think it's also just worth explicitly saying that there's nothing about being Jewish, you know, I happen to love being Jewish, but there's, uh, there's nothing that, about being Jewish that means that one cannot be susceptible to the same supremacist politics that any other group can. And that should be obvious, but I actually think that in some ways it needs to be stated because sometimes um, uh, it's not obvious to many people that somehow it's, we're, it's like as if we are, because we were history's victims, we are exempted from those tendencies, right? We see in, and I'll stop, but you know, we see in India, we see in um, Myanmar, right, with, with, with Buddhism, we see that any religious or ethnic or national national history can tragically be turned in a supremacist direction. And I think it's important to state that explicitly. Thank you. That was so powerful. I, do you think that this conversation on Jewish supremacy is actually happening among Jewish Americans? No, I, I don't, not much yet, but I, I think it, um, it may. I mean, I think right now the battle lines are still around, I tend to be around apartheid. Um, uh, and I would say to some degree around the connection of Zionism, particularly as its relation to anti-Semitism. But I, I think that I wouldn't 
but I think that I wouldn't be surprised if the conversation about supremacy gains traction. And I think Bethlehem deserves credit for having, it's not that they invented this again, as you said, Palestinians have been talking about these things for a long time, but I think Bethlehem as an Israeli organization gave it a kind of a hexer, uh, a kind of a stamp of imprimatur that I think is valuable. Great, thank you. I actually, I wanna ask the same question of, of Orly and, and Natasha about uh, the conversation around Jewish supremacy in Israel, you talked about the the um, the mainstreaming of of Ben Gvir and of these politics, and that they are now projected to become the third largest religious Zionism is projected to become the third largest party in, in the Knesset, and Ben Gvir is all over the media. Is there a conversation around um, Jewish? He's an explicit Jewish supremacist. Is there a, a conversation around Jewish supremacy, good or bad, or is it just taken for granted? Um. I, no, I mean, there is no public discussion about uh, Jewish supremacy in, in in Israel, certainly not as such. There are discussions about uh, the question of racism. But then, uh, as Natasha said, the, the, the entire Israeli Jewish community has been so desensitized uh, over the, the years to manifestations of um, uh, of fascism, of extreme racism, that we do not really distinguish. I mean, the, as a as a public, we've sort of lost the the, the ability. Like uh, so, Itamar Ben Gvir is taking down Baruch Goldstein's picture from his living room. Is sort of a token that is enough for the Israeli public to say, well. Uh, he's not uh, uh, the same brat that he used to be, and he's uh, he, uh, he's more moderate uh, now. And uh, and and uh, the, and also the thing is that um, racism is. Um, I mean, where do you draw the line if Israel itself, at its very most basic uh, definition is uh, uh, giving uh, 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 priority to uh, to Jewish uh, citizens over other citizens. Then where do you draw the line? Where do you? Where it, it, I don't think that as a, a public we have the ability to say because otherwise it's just more of this. You know, it's it's um, if you have the legitimacy to have more privileges uh, in the most fundamental definition of the state you in which you live, then your ability to point out or to distinguish uh, uh, different kind of racism or, or uh, supremacy uh, is becoming very weak. We, and, and, the, and you see it also in the, in the public, uh, in the political trends that we keep shifting to the right more and more and more as uh, as a collective. Um, so so to, to answer your question, no, this discussion is not happening uh, in Israel. And, and very powerful mechanisms are preventing or obstructing the collective ab ability, the Jewish collective ability to, to hold that conversation. Thank you. N Natasha, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I just, you know, to, to reply a little bit to your question, Sarah Ann, about, you know, is this conversation happening? And just affirming what Orly is saying, um, the thing that's really 
stunning if you sit and think about it, although maybe it's, it's sadly predictable for those of us who, who are watching this kind of thing, is that traditionally, you know, Ben Gvir and other Khanists and, and other, other um, far-right Jewish extremists in Israel-Palestine who have kind of been associated with settler violence um, or violence within the Green Line, you know, have always served as this kind of, well, up until now, as this kind of useful avatar for what Jewish supremacism looks like or what Jewish extremism looks like. And it's been a real get-out clause for a long time um, for you know other right-wing forces in the country to say, well, that's what Jewish supremacism looks like, and we're not that. So therefore, you know, we're the adults in the room, or we're moderates, or we're not extremists, or we shouldn't be censured for our policies and for our views. And it's gotten to the point now where Ben Gvir can't serve as that avatar anymore because he's not he's not considered beyond the pale. He's not considered marginal. His views aren't marginal enough to exclude him from the political conversation. Um, and again, I think that, you know, Israeli society, I think is just, as, as Oli said, is, is just kind of been going in this direction anyway, has been assimilating these shifts anyway, but that presents a real challenge to American Jewish and other diaspora Jewish organizations who have long, uh, you know, put their put their opinions alongside that of those within it alongside those within Israel who were saying you know we can't we can't be called extremists because that's what an extremist looks like and we're we're not behaving in that way thanks natasha that is um su- super helpful and 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 also parallels what orly was saying earlier about thinking about where merits fits on the the scale of jewish supremacism um, what it what it looks like on on the range and thinking about merits within that context while also differentiating them from the the policies of of Ben Gvir and the and the Kahanas and Smotrich and, and the other Kahanists and so it, it, in that vein um, actually to many people and and especially to Palestinians um, Zionism is inherently a Jewish supremacist ideology. Uh, and I want to ask you all to, to, to comment on that. If what we're talking about is not just what has developed in Israel over time, but specifically something embedded in Zionist ideologies, I, I want to ask you if it's possible to have a Zionism that isn't a Jewish supremacist ideology. And Peter, can we start with you? Sure. So I think what we can say is that there were historically people who call themselves Zionists, people who in some ways as thinkers might have even been influential Zionists, like Achad Ha'am, who I don't think were uh, Jewish supremacists. And the reason they weren't Jewish supremacists is because they weren't look, they weren't trying to create a Jewish state. They weren't trying to create a state that, that, that gave Jews rights that Palestinians didn't have. What they wanted was the, um, the a Jewish presence, a kind of, uh, that would do a kind of cultural production in Israel-Palestine, Hebrew language, other kinds of things. And they were really open to different kinds of state forms that, you know, um, the continuation of Ottoman rule early on. And then people like Martin Buber and and Judah Magnus uh, and others who supported a binational state. Now, not to say that these folks didn't have their own blind spots um, and they were not politically powerful, um, but that tradition um, existed. It's obviously a tradition that has um, very, very little political influence. So if you want to say, is 
Zionism as it's practiced by the Israeli state, you know, um, today, you know, whether which, regardless of which political party is in power, um, is that supremacist? Yes, it is. So then the question goes, is what value would there is there in trying to preserve or imagine the existence of a, another kind of marginal, you know, cultural Zionism that isn't? Um, you know, some people might say this is just irrelevant philosophizing. Um, uh, for me, I think I personally feel like that tradition is valuable um, because partly because I think the notion has become so embedded in um, certainly American Jewish discourse that essentially goes something along the lines of if you don't have a state that privileges Jews over Palestinians, you don't have Jews in Israel-Palestine, or you certainly don't have Jews who are flourishing. You don't have Jews who are safe. You don't have Jews that can actually um, that can actually represent something for the rest of the Jewish people around the world. Um, and I think that, so in that regard, I think there's something valuable in saying, actually, no, there were people who imagined um, a flourishing Jewish society, whatever exactly that means, that lived in equality with uh, Palestinians and others in this territory. Now, and I, I do think that that requires accepting the idea of binationalism, that, that Israeli Jews represent an, a people, a nation alongside Palestinians. And that is, there, that is controversial in some quarters, in uh, some anti-Zionist quarters. So there will be people who disagree with me. But to my mind, it's kind of self-evidently true that Israeli Jews do see themselves as a people. Um, and I think that one can, there are places in the world where, where you can see that there is a system of liberal democracy and equality under the law that represent, that recognizes the different um, groups that different nations um, want certain forms of cultural autonomy, right? Belgium, for instance, right? That people want to be educated in the language that they speak, um, that they want to be able to have religious holidays that speak to their religious tradition. So for, for me, that's the reason that it is useful to think and remember, and I would even say, in my mind, cherish the kind of cultural Zionist tradition, even though it's one that doesn't have political influence today. Thank you. That's helpful. And and so you're differentiating between political and cultural Zionism and in, and in, in some ways saying that um, as long as you're not, as long as the focus wasn't on putting um, an army behind that that Zionism, then it, it was possible to to escape the 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 supremacist inclinations or maybe um, the the chauvinist inclinations that become supremacy. Is that yeah. that? Yes. Thank you, uh, Orlier and, and Natasha. Do you want to comment on that? Maybe Natasha first, if you want to. Yeah, sure. Um... I'm going to give a historian's answer, which maybe is taking the easy way out. Uh, but um, you know, I do, I I do very much identify with with what Peter was saying about you know needing to address what we're dealing with as a reality uh, first and foremost, rather than than kind of philosophizing over what might have been or, or what could have been, uh, you know. On that note, I'll just add that there were forms of Zionism that weren't even particularly territorial and were much more about, you know, cultural and linguistic and spiritual renewal in place, you know, in different corners of empire in the late 19th and 20th centuries, uh, early 20th centuries. Um, but going back to my historian's answer, I think, I think looking at these different formulations can be valuable because of what I mentioned earlier about how 
nationalism can deteriorate. And I think it's helpful to look at the material conditions in the environments that produce these ideas and then what processes and changes in those material conditions led to them becoming the Zionism that we see today, um, which, as Peter rightly said, is is very much applied to supremacist ends uh, in, in Israel-Palestine. Thank you. Orly, did you want to add? Um, yes, um, I, I don't think that, uh, I, I actually think that this is uh, very interesting and very relevant to think about non-supremacist Zionist options, not just a theoretical uh, exercise of what could have happened. I actually think that in a way, Echada Am spiritual, cultural Zionism is the only um, branch of Zionism that prevailed, that really uh, achieved its initial goal, because this is, I mean, this is the only really added value the, or, or, or uh, uh, Jewish um, uh, identity that Israel is providing as a central, as a center for uh, cultural uh, 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 creation in Hebrew. I think the question of language is very, very central uh, here. Um, and, uh, and in that sense, Echadam's um, uh, uh, school of thought was, was very much valid and, 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 uh, and prevailed. Uh, political Zionism really had that had not no not a, not a single Jewish thing really Jewish to offer us other than brutality and uh, uh, supremacy and etc. Now I agree with Peter very much that Zionism by or the thought that uh, Judaism is something beyond uh, merely a religion that there are. Um, that we are people in additional ways than just to be defined uh, in terms of uh, of religion. But what made the Im implementation or the materialization of political Zionism in Israel into an inevitable, inevitable supremacist one, I, I think it's two uh, factors. The, the the first is demanding exclusivity uh, in terms of national identity uh, or defin de definition in a, a space that has two national collectives in it. So erasing the other one is uh, one factor. And the other factor is aspiring to uh, expand the the uh, that it's not territorial, that the definition uh, of the uh, Jewish state uh, is relevant to the entire Jewry of the world. Uh, while nation states are, you know, limited, the definition of nationality in a modern national state are limited to a specific territorial uh, unit. And Zionism wanted beyond that. It, it wanted to include all Jews 
of the world, uh, at least theoretically. theoretically. At the same time, it's true that in, uh, we cannot just erase the, the, or, or disregard the reality, the fact that in the 70 some years of Israel's ex existence, a new um, national identity was created of Jewish Israelis. And uh, in that sense, and I think that this is, uh, you know, I'm often asked what a, a nice Jewish girl is doing in Balad, um, uh, which is um, a Palestinian National Democratic uh, uh, Party. And I always say I, I'm there because of my Jewish identity, because this is the only way, speaking of uh, settler colonialism, that we can decolonial, decolonialize uh, our existence by accepting the legitimacy of the native people in accepting our national identity as Israeli Jews, not the entire Jewry of the world and not exclusively uh, Jewish, but to they can give us that legitimacy in and in return, we should give the same acknowledgement in the other uh, national collective uh, uh, that exists, which is, the, of course, the Palestinian citizens. Thank you, Orly. Um, Peter, do you do you have a comment on 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 uh, what Orly and Natasha said? Do you want to say any more about about Zionism and and supremacy? Uh, no, no, I I, I I agree very much with what they're saying, and I think that um, there is a um, I think that what often happens is that. Um, um, uh, there's a conversation about um, the word self-determination often gets used in, in, in the American in the American context. The idea is, well, don't Jews deserve self-determination? Don't don't Jews or don't Israeli Jews deserve self-determination? And people will say, well, Palestinians deserve self-determination, then surely Jews deserve self-determination as well. And I think that one um, thing that I think cultural, thinking about the cultural Zionist tradition allows us to do is to remember that self-determination doesn't mean sovereignty. Um, it doesn't mean a state that a supremacist state. Self-determination can mean that your community, that, that, that a state, that a state that treats you as equal to your neighbors can delegate certain authority that allows a community to, 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 um, to have its own institution. Um, uh, and, and that that is a form of self-determination uh, uh, and that in, within a binational equal state that therefore Israeli Jews would have self-determination just like Palestinians would have self-determination and they would also be treated equally in a state that was neither a Jewish supremacist state nor a Palestinian supremacist state. Thank you for that. Um, I, I appreciate that and appreciate that we, we keep um, drilling down into, into nuance that I think is actually very helpful and important in terms of uh, defining, defining, and, and redefining what specifically we're we're talking about, um, and so actually to to close, I want to bring up a, a place that I think I heard Orly and Peter disagree, and so I want to ask you all to comment on it, um, which is so so Peter talked about one of the limits of of uh, just using settler colonialism as a framework to understand Israel Palestine is that one of the things that you then miss is the um, long relationship between Jews, Jewish people, Jewish culture, history, liturgy to the land of Israel, um, and, and specifically the ways in which uh, 
Jewish presence in Israel now is experienced as a kind of homecoming. So that that is missed when settler colonialism is the only frame. And Orly, you just talked about uh, this this one piece of what Zionism, political Zionism did, which was be extraterritorial, which was actually say that Jews around the world are implicated in the state of Israel. And here we are on a, on a call uh, on with with four Jews um, with multiple passports among us. But whether or not we are Israeli citizens, we are each of us at one point in our lives was a potential Israeli citizen. And we could all um, maybe accepting for certain uh, uh, political reasons now, though I don't even think so yet, become Israeli citizens tomorrow were we to want to. Um, and so my question is, and this is actually a question for all of you, um, is it possible for a non-Palestinian uh, and especially for a Jewish person, so a non-Palestinian Jew, but a Jewish person, not, not indigenous to that land, um, to cultivate or to have attachment now to Israel or to Israel-Palestine that isn't expressed or articulated through a kind of Jewish supremacy? And if that is possible, how, how do you do it? I mean, I think it, I think it is empirically. I mean, to give one example, I mean, let's say Satmar Hasidim, right? I mean, Satmar Hasidim are historically anti-Zionist, remain largely anti-Zionist, and yet still have a very, very strong attachment to, you know, the land of Israel for religious reasons. And also because they're simply, they are a transnational community that have a lot of people in, uh, in Israel-Palestine along as, as long as other people. And I, so, and I, so I think it is, I think it would be, it would be, um, I think, I, I think for many, many Jew, diaspora Jews around the world, they would feel amputated if they could not have, if they, if they were, if they could not feel like they had a, a relationship with um, the, the people and the, and, and even in some sense, whatever it means, the land, because they've grown up as you said, with traditions, with liturgies that have emphasized that, and they may have family there, or just an abstract recognition that, you know, a very, what, 40% of the Jews around the world or so live in that territory. And I think that's understandable and reasonable and natural and should be accepted. Then the difficult question is, how does it get expressed in a way that um, is not supremacist um, and that doesn't end up trampling on the rights of Palestinians? And, 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 and in, in practice, that is a challenge when, right, the very act of going to Israel and, you know, being waved through Ben Gurion Airport, et cetera, et cetera, being having the chances or all these things, and you know that your Palestinian friends and neighbors who may have been born there, whose parents are, are you know, are denied all those things. Um, so I think at the very least, one ha one has to struggle with that. In terms of where, ultimately, I would like to imagine one day we could potentially be would be in a an equal country that, that, that provided equality under the law and was also able to say, and therefore had an immigration policy that did not privilege Jews over Palestinians, um, certainly, but could also say, given that we are a state made up of Jews and Palestinians, that we have a special concern for any Jews or Palestinians around the world who are in distress, and that while we have a robust asylum policy for anyone in distress around the world, we might say that given that, that, that we would have a priority for Palestinians and Jews wherever they were who were in danger, um, uh, and that this state would have a particular concern for that. 
Um, so that might be for me one way that a, a future equal state could reflect that, that connection. Thanks, Peter. Orly? Um, yeah, I, I actually agree with uh, uh, Peter, but I just want to, I mean, it's true, Peter, that uh, Satma or Haredim uh, can relate to the land of Israel uh, not through the lenses uh, of uh, uh, Zionism. But at the same time, the Jewish privileges are sort of imprinted on us just by being Jewish, and the Satma Haredim are no exception, because just by being Jewish, they do have the privilege to become a citizen in Israel. They choose not to, but the privilege is imprinted in them, as opposed to Palestinian refugees who have roots here for hundreds, hundreds of years and still are, do not have uh, the same um, uh, the same privileges. And I am a living example for that. Yeah, When I immigrated to Israel from Iran at the age of nine, I already had more privileges in it uh, than any uh, Palestinian, uh, not just refugees, but also inside Israel. And there is, I think, and, and I think that all of us sort of growing up uh, in um, non-Israeli Jewish communities, we know that there is such a thing, such an affiliation, uh, 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 attraction, connection, emotional, historic, a religious connection to Jew, uh, 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 of Jewish communities to the land of Israel. Nobody can deny that. But I think that what Zionism did very manipulatively is to uh, turn the term love of Zion, Ahavatzion, that's an entirely different thing than Zionism, certainly in its political uh, uh, understanding or, or, or interpretation today. So we should uh, hold on to the idea of Ahavatzion, of the love of Zion. It's there and nobody can take it away. But but this is not a theoretical or religious uh, discussion. This is the way that these connections are being translated into political, uh, brutal power at the expense of a native inhabitants of this land uh, uh, and their po uh, po uh, political uh, right. And this is the question that we sh should be dealing with. Nobody is taking away our emotional, historic, religious connections to the land of Israel. The only the, the, uh, to Eretz Israel, yes, not the state of Israel. The only thing is uh, how, how, how do we not translate it into Jewish supremacist political entity? And we haven't been able to do that, uh, or we're not willing to do that, uh, unfortunately, so far. Thank you, Orly. Thank you. What a powerful statement. Um, Peter, Natasha, Orly, I'm so grateful to all of you for this conversation. And uh, I want to ask you to, to offer any last words that you want to ask. I think that that um, Orly's last question is really the question for us that the, this that that you've you've left with us, which is no one has been able to 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 create the non-Jewish supremacist root or 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 structures yet so far um is there any last are there any last comments that you you want to make before we close yeah i'll jump in with with something quickly that um 
I think ties into what Henri was just saying then, which I agree was really powerful. And also just, um, you know, referring back to our, I think, justifiably frequent mentions of Kahnism and Ben Gvir, I think we're right to identify this as, you know, a particularly heightened form of Jewish supremacism. I think we're right to identify this as, you know, Kahnism as a discrete phenomenon. But I think it's important not to get too uh, distracted by its discreteness because I've said this before in, in some of my articles for 972, but there does not need to be a Kahana's party in the Knesset for some of the policies that Kahana and his you know, ideological progeny have championed for decades to just be the order of the day. Otsmayodi does not need to be in the Knesset to perpetrate uh, ethnic cleansing, to demolish people's homes, to conduct extrajudicial assassinations in the street, to enable settlers to violently attack Palestinians and their property, either with impunity or active collaboration with soldiers. So I think when we talk about Jewish supremacism, I think we need to identify its sharp points, but I think we also need to, to go back to what we were saying at the beginning about identifying its roots and identifying the aspects of it that are really woven into the state's institutions and that are present in the Israeli regime, not as some kind of aberration or politics run amok, but absolutely by design. Thank you so much, Natasha. Peter. I just end by one. My fear is that supremacist politics, ethnic, racial, religious, will continue to grow around the world, and that will make Jewish supremacist politics more legitimate. Um, um, because people already say this. Well, everyone else has a state, right? What they really mean by that is not entirely clear often, right? But the more it actually becomes the case that actually this is mainstream normalized politics around the world, the more I think the easier it will be to me. And, and, and also we have this paradigm. I mean, I'm ever very struck by some people I know. They said after Trump got elected, their daughter, who was in a Jewish high school, woke up and decided, said, I need to make Aliyah. I'm only going to be safe in Israel. Right. So you think about that. They were reacting to the rise of Christian white supremacists in the United States, essentially by saying, oh, they this language. Well, if there's going to be supremacism everywhere, the only way I can be safe is to go to the place where I have supremacists of my group. Right. That's going to be a, a terrible, terrible world. Right. Um, and, and so I think it just it, it just makes all important for us to see the interconnection of these struggles um, and the way in which I think that. Um, uh, that that the that that unless we begin to be able to have a more effective struggle against Jewish supremacism in Israel, we are going to end up creating a world that legitimizes forms of supremacism that are going to actually be dangerous for diaspora Jews, and actually create a world in which the idea of equality as a vision becomes more and more distant. And that's what that's what I fear. Thank you, Peter. Orly. Um, yes, yeah, so just uh, for conclusion, I, I want to go very, very briefly to your introduction, um, Sarah Ann. I was, like Natasha, uh, quite surprised that uh, the discourse of uh, Jewish supremacy is easier to digest for uh, uh, Jewish uh, communities uh, 
outside Israel uh, or in America, rather than uh, concepts such as uh, apartheid and um, occupation and so on. And I would, uh, you know, if there is a sense of solidarity, of connection, of Jewish net of, of some sort, then I would very much urge the Jewish communities to uh, pay, not to take the, 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 the notion of supremacy lightly in any way, because, um, you know, laws can be revoked, legal constructions can be changed, but the sense, the notion of supremacy that intrigues or, or that uh, um, penetrates so deeply into the minds and con concepts and conceptions of Israeli Jews would be very, very difficult to deal with, to heal. I think this is really sort of a disease that will need to be healed at some point. And it will be very difficult to heal those sentiments even after uh, uh, God willing, apartheid uh, would fall uh, and as soon as possible, uh, we hope. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, all three of you. This has been such a rich discussion, and and um, and I hope the start of a discussion. One of the things that that you that you all said essentially is that the specific discussion around Jewish supremacy it's not happening in the diaspora. It's not happening among uh, Jewish Americans. It's not happening in Israel as Jewish supremacy is is on the rise more and more. Um, and I think that there's so much more to say and to discuss. And I am so grateful to all three of you for sharing your time and, and your analysis and your insights today. And I want to thank the listeners uh, who are listening to this podcast for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast, for lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you can stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and you can also watch video versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thanks so much and take care.